Section 8 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nathan B. Oman, Williamsburg, Virginia. Chapter 2, The New World by E.J. Payne, Part 3. At this point, where France retires for a time from the stage, leaving England to enter upon it and open the drama of Anglo-American history, we drop the thread of events to resume our survey of the effect produced by the discovery and unveiling of the New World on European ideas and intellectual habits. The complete revolution in geography, which now suddenly revealed to man his gross ignorance in the most elementary field of knowledge, the earth beneath his feet, had a wider effect. It shook the existing systems of science, though it had not as yet the effect of shattering it, much less replacing it by something more nearly in accordance with the truth of things. It produced in many, over and above the suspicion already long harbored in logical minds, that neither the accepted doctrine and practice of the Catholic Church, nor any modification of it, likely to meet with acceptance in its place, could possibly represent the true construction of God's will revealed in Scripture, that sense of general intellectual insecurity, which is best named skepticism. Caron's future motto, Cousse-je, became the leading motive in intellectual conduct. It is impossible to attempt here to trace this movement in its entirety. We can but select three writers, belonging to three successive generations, and all prominent among their contemporaries as pioneers of new paths of thought, and all of whom avowedly derived much of their inspiration from the events briefly noticed above. All three were laymen, a fact not in itself devoid of significance. The writings of ecclesiastics during this period, even in the case of distinguished humanists, such as Bembo and Erasmus, show scarcely a trace of the same influence. The control of thought was passing away from the church. All three, too, were lawyers, and two of them were Lord Chancellors of England. Sir Thomas More, born ten years before the voyage of Colombo, wrote and published his Utopia in 1516, soon after the Pacific had been first descried from the mountain in Darien, and while the Spaniards in the Antilles were gathering the information which led to the conquest of Mexico and Peru, both as yet unknown. This admirable classic of the Renaissance, too keen in its satire and too refined in its feeling to have any practical effect commensurate with the acceptance which it instantly won among cultivated and thoughtful contemporaries, was avowedly suggested by the discovery and settlement of the new Western world. What possibilities of discovery, not merely in the realm of geography, but in that of social organization, morals, and politics, were laid open by this amazing revelation of a strange world of oceans, islands, and continents covering one-third of the sphere. The extent of America to the westward, with all that lay beyond, was as yet unknown, and more was not exceeding the limits of these possibilities when he described a traveler who had accompanied Vespucci on his last voyage as remaining in South America with a few companions and making their way westward home by shore and sea, thus anticipating the circumnavigation of the globe, which a few more years were to see achieved. The traveler's name is Hytholadius, or Expert in Nonsense, and none among the countries visited by him so strongly arrest his attention as the island of Utopia, or Nowhere where the traditional absurdities dominant in the old world are unknown and society is constituted on a humane and reasonable basis.
Utopia is an aristocratic republic in which the officers of government elected annually are presided over by a chief magistrate elected for life. Everyone is engaged in agriculture and drones are banished from the hive. It is an accepted principle that every man has a natural right to so much of the earth as is necessary for his subsistence and may lawfully dispossess of his land any possessor who leaves it untilled. Even the generous imagination of Moore did not rise to the conception of a state of society in which slavery was unknown, and the laboring population of Utopia are still slaves. Not that they are held as private property, for private property is unknown. Whatever is valuable is held, as it were, on lease from the community, on condition of making such use of it as shall inure to the public benefit. The family is patriarchally governed. There is no coinage. Gold and silver are not used as ornaments, but are only applied to the basest purposes, and precious stones serve only to adorn children. The energies of the utopians, released from the empty employments of the old world life, are concentrated on the development of learning and science. Many of them worship the heavenly bodies and the distinguished dead, but the majority are theists. Their priests are chosen by popular election. They have few and excellent laws, but no professional lawyers. They detest war, but are well armed and fight intrepidly when necessary, though by preference they employ a neighboring nation of herdsmen as mercenaries. The temples of the Utopians are private buildings, and there is no worship of images. No living thing is offered in sacrifice, though incense is burned, and wax candles are lighted during the service of God, and vocal and instrumental music is practiced in connection with it. But in all religious matters, there is absolute toleration. There is indeed a limited exception in favor of the immortality of the soul, and a future state of rewards and punishments, belief in both of which is thought to be essential to good citizenship. Yet even those who reject these doctrines are tolerated on the principle that a man cannot make himself believe that which he might desire to believe, but which his reason compels him to reject. These, however, are regarded as base and sordid natures, and excluded from public offices and honors. The attitude of the utopian towards Christianity, of which they hear for the first time from Hytholidius, is described as favorable. What chiefly disposes them to receive it is its original doctrine of community of goods. Before the strangers quit Utopia, many of the inhabitants have embraced Christianity and received baptism. The question of the Christian priesthood presents a difficulty. All the European travelers are laymen. How, then, can the Utopian Christians obtain the services of duly qualified pastors? They settle this question for themselves. Applying the established principle of popular election, they hold that one so chosen could effectually do all things pertaining to the priestly office, notwithstanding the lack of authority derived through the successors of St. Peter. Although Christianity is thus permitted and even encouraged, its professors are forbidden to be unduly zealous for its propagation. A Christian convert who condemns other religions as profane and declares their adherents doomed to everlasting punishment is found guilty of sedition and banished. The utopia, it will be seen, is no mere academic imitation of Plato's Republic. Specifically, the New World has little to do with its details. It was the mere possibility suggested by the New World which occasioned this remarkable picture of a state of society diametrically opposed to the aspect of contemporary Europe. Moore's romance lost its hold on 
public attention as soon as headstrong enthusiasts on the continent endeavored to realize some of its fundamental principles. But at a later date, through the founders of New Jersey and Pennsylvania, it had some ultimate effect on, as it took its motive from, the New World, which was beginning to stir European minds to their depths at the time when it was written. From more, we turn to a writer of a later generation, remarkable for the freedom and independence of his mental attitude toward contemporary ideas and institutions, who avows in more than one place that the New World profoundly modified his habits of thought. No close reader of Montaigne will dispute that the contemplation of the New World in connection with the events which happened after its discovery greatly contributed to give him that large grasp of things, that mental habit of charity and comprehensiveness, something of which passed from him to Bacon and to Shakespeare, both diligent students of his writings. Michel de Montaigne, a French advocate and country gentleman, who may be called the Plato of modern philosophical literature, was born in 1533 when Pizarro was overrunning Peru. During his life, the New World was growing ever larger in the eyes of mankind, and as it drew him to itself by a species of intellectual gravitation, it detached him from the standing ground of his time and raised him in a corresponding degree far above it. The facts of Aboriginal American history and ethnology, narrated by the conquistadors and by other travelers, sank deeply into his mind, and his knowledge of the New World was not mere book learning. As a counselor of Bordeaux, he often came in contact with merchants and seamen who were familiar with America, but his chief source of information was a man in his own services, who had lived ten or twelve years in Brazil, whom he described as a plain, ignorant fellow, but from whom he seems never to have been weary of learning at first hand. Before Colombo's voyage, the savage or brute man had been a little known in Europe, and was in fact as much a myth as the unicorn or the griffin. When Montaigne wrote, he had become as well known as the Moor, the Berber, or the Guinea Negro, and the spectacle of a new transatlantic continent scarcely less extensive than the aggregate of those old world countries of which Europe possessed any definite knowledge, and peopled by men scarcely above the state of nature, seized the French philosopher with a strange fascination. By its contrast with European life, it suggested some startling reflections. What if civilization, after all, were a morbid and unnatural growth? What if the condition of man in America were that for which the Creator designed him? What if those omnipotent powers, law, and custom, as at present constituted, were impudent usurpers, destined one day to decline under the influence of right reason, and to give place, if not to the original rule of beneficent nature, at least to something essentially very different from the systems which now passed under their names. Montaigne put three questions very pointedly. In the Tupiguari of Brazil, as described by one who had known them long and intimately, he recognized nothing of the character associated with the word barbarous and savage. They were rather a people permanently enjoying the fabled golden age of ancient poetry, strangers to the toils, diseases, social inequalities, vices, and trickeries which chiefly make up civilized life, drawing together in vast common houses, though the institutions of the family were strictly preserved, and enjoying with little or no labor and no fear for the future all the reasonable commodities and advantages of human life, while knowing nothing of its superfluities, refined in their tastes for poetry, specimens of which were recited to him by his domestic informant, and which appeared to him anacreonactic in their grace and beauty, and employed chiefly in the chase, the universal pleasure of the human race, even in the highest state of refinement. 
This they carried perhaps a stage too far. They hunted their neighboring tribesmen for his flesh, and like others among the more advanced American peoples were cannibals, a name which Montaigne used as the title of the laudatory tractate here quoted. What of that? Civilized man, says the philosopher, who practically enforces servitude on nine-tenths of the human race, consumes the flesh and blood of his fellow man alive. Is it not worse to eat one's fellow man alive than it is to eat him dead? These Americans torture their prisoners, it is true. Worse tortures are inflicted in civilized Europe in the sacred names of justice and religion. We Europeans regard these, our fellow men, with contempt and aversion. Are we, in the sight of God, much better than they? Have we done, are we doing, by our fellow man at home according to the light which is or should be within us? Montaigne was perhaps only half serious, yet such views commended themselves more or less to perfectly serious thinkers in other European countries, and they accorded with a feeling which had long been gaining ground of revolt against the hollow pageantry, the rigid social and political forms, the grasping at an empty show of power and dignity which marked medieval life, and of expectation advancing toward more of simplicity, sincerity, and accordance with truth and nature. These views affected men's religious conceptions and had something to do with the Protestant and Puritan views of religious duty and theory. They were more amply represented in the Quakerism of a later age, and while they originated in the old world, they had their freest and fullest development, as will appear later in this history, in the new. Held in check in Europe, where power tenaciously clung to the machinery of feudalism, they fermented in and began to permeate social strata on which that machinery rested with crushing weight and produced those revolutionary and socialistic doctrines which have so largely affected modern European society, but have found less favor in America. The immigrant in the New World was conscious of breathing different air. In this spacious continent, much seemed trifling and even ridiculous, which had commanded his respect and even devotion at home. Much of the burden of the past seemed to fall from his shoulders. Industry ensured subsistence even to the poorest. Security of subsistence led by an easy transition to competence and often to affluence. In all these stages, a general sense of independence was fostered, felt in different degrees in different parts, but common to some extent to the Spanish landowner among his Indian serfs, the sugar planter among his slaves, the missionary among the converts he was reclaiming from savagery, and the peasant wrestling with the forest and turning it into an expanse of fertile fields. The political tie which bound the immigrant to the European power, commanding his allegiance, was scarcely felt. The merchant made large profits, capital earned high interest, there was everywhere a large measure of freedom in local government. Even in Spanish America, the European distinction between the noble and the plebeian was never introduced, nor could the courts of justice exercise the jurisdiction of the Hidiguera. Such a condition of things necessarily had its reaction on the mother countries, and Europe almost from the first felt that reaction in however slight a degree. In one respect, the medieval constitution of Europe received from the New World in the period immediately subsequent to the discovery a decided accession of strength. The conquest and settlement of Spanish and Portuguese America opened an immense field of operation to the Catholic Church, and this field was forthwith entered upon with extraordinary vigor and success. During the 16th century, Rome was gaining in the New World more than she was losing in the Old, in Mexico, in Peru, in New Granada, foundations already existed from which the missionary had but to sweep away an effete superstructure to erect a loftier and more durable one. 
the Aborigines were deeply imbued with religious ideas and trained from childhood to regular habits of worship and ritual. The houses of the gods, numerous and often magnificent, were held in deep veneration and endowed with extensive estates. The superiority of the great Dios of the Spaniards, a title understood by the Indians to be the proper name of a deity to whose worship the people of Europe were especially devoted, had been abundantly manifested in the military successes of his votaries. Conversion was insisted on by the conquerors, and as the image of the old deities were destroyed, their shrines defaced, and their rites forbidden, compliance was dictated by the very spirit of aboriginal paganism. In Mexico, where the ancient rites demanded human sacrifices in vast numbers and in cruel and repulsive form, their abolition was effected with comparative ease. In Peru, where human sacrifice was chiefly limited to infant victims who were simply strangled and buried, the Indians were more firmly attached to their old religion, and a serious obstacle to its abandonment lay in their devotion to the practice of ancestor worship. Long after the mass of them had accepted the doctrine and practice of Christianity, they secretly offered sacrifice to the desiccated bodies of the dead, and a rigorous and prolonged inquisition had to be organized and carried into effect before the idolatry of Peru was extirpated. Meanwhile, the settlement of the church proceeded on the general lines recognized in Europe, but in America, as in the Spanish districts conquered from the Moors, the Holy See forbore some of its prescriptive rights in favor of the crown. Notwithstanding the ordinances of the Lateran Council, Alexander the Sixth, in 1501, granted to the crown all titles and firstfruits of the Indies. The consideration for this temporalization of property, which of right belonged to the church, was the conquest of territory from infidels and their conversion to Christianity. The right of patronage in all sees and benefices was also vested by the Pope in the Spanish sovereign, as fully as had been done in the case of the Kingdom of Granada, subject only to the condition that it should remain in the crown inalienably. The crown was further appointed the Pope's legate in America. The limits of dioceses were at first laid down by the Popes, but even this right, together with the powers of dividing and consolidating them, was granted to the crown, and no American bishop could return to Europe without the viceroy's license. The church in America held its own councils under the direction of the metropolitans of Mexico and Lima, and no appeal in ecclesiastical matters was carried to Rome. The crown obtained the income of vacant sees, a part of which was assigned to the defense of the coasts against heretic pirates. These concessions were amply justified by the immense revenue which poured into Rome from Spanish America in the form of donations, of proceeds of bulls for the Holy Crusade, and of the sale of indulgences and dispensations. What the Holy See bestowed with one hand, it received back in larger measure with the other. Outside the limits of settled life, the work of evangelization was vigorously pursued by Franciscan, Dominican, and Augustinian friars, who from the first flocked to the New World in all its parts. But the chief share in this labor was borne by the newly founded Company of Jesus. Among the exigencies which led to its establishment may certainly be reckoned the need of adequately grappling with the task of preaching Christianity in America, as well as in India and the Far East, and the numerous reductions in the savage districts of North and South America abundantly testify to the devotion and energy of the Jesuit fathers. At first, the regular clergy greatly outnumbered the secular. In many cases, they received by dispensation valuable benefices, and being in all respects better educated and trained than the secular clergy, they more easily acquired the American languages. 
the surplus incomes of these regularized benefices were remitted to the superiors of their incumbents in Europe and were ultimately applied to the foundation of houses of the several orders in the New World. The Franciscan, Augustinian, and Jesuit colleges in Peru were, in effect, the chief centers of European civilization, and the Jesuits have left a durable monument of their zeal in the Republic of Paraguay. To those members of these orders who engaged in missionary work, the ethnologist and historian are greatly indebted. But for their labors, the deeply interesting history and folklore of Mexico and Peru would have been inadequately preserved, and the language of many tribes outside the pale of Settle must have perished. Together with the fine churches attached to the mission settlements, the cathedral and parish churches of Spanish America, often built on the sites of ancient temples, form a unique series of historical monuments, entirely built by native labor and largely by voluntary contributions from native sources, they were, to a great extent, served by pastors of Indian or partly Indian descent, a class whom it was the policy of Spain to foster, and through which her control of her vast American dominions was in some measure maintained. What was the effect of the New World in the realm of learning and science? Here, on the whole, the New World, at least in the first 80 years of its history, figures rather as a consequence than a cause. At Montaigne's death, Francis Bacon, designing to reconstruct the system of the sciences, was meditating and elaborating the great series of books and tractates which his views were given to the world. In many of his writings, it is clear that America, with its physical features, its plants and animals, and its aboriginal race, was largely the subject of his meditations, and that the vast array of facts associated with it enlarged and modified his opinions and forecasts. To some extent, Bacon was the scholar of Montaigne, whose conception of America as the middle one of three island continents which once lay westward of the old world, the vanished Atlantis which gave its name to the Atlantic, the newfound America beyond it, and a third still undiscovered but probably soon to be revealed in the unknown expanses of the Pacific, and called by Bacon New Atlantis as bearing the same geographical relation to the new world which the earlier Atlantis had borne to the old, underlies his noble philosophical romance bearing that name as its title. Bacon's habit of thought and study had induced in him a broader and profounder conception of the new world than that presented in the pages of his French predecessor. The phenomena of society which chiefly attracted Montaigne was for him only a secondary interest. Thirsting to know the causes of things, he aspired to comprehend nature in her entirety, to penetrate her secret, and to interpret her message. And the new world lent him opportune and unexpected help. The configuration of sea and land surfaces, the mountains, the tides and winds, the animals and plants of the new world, opened for the first time an enormous field of physical inquiry. The new world, for example, threw new light on the distribution of terrestrial and maritime areas, like the continents of the Old World, Europe and Asia for the purpose of this comparison counting as one, both North and South America broadened out towards the North and tapered toward the South, the alternative principle of termination by variously shaped peninsulas being found here also to recur. What, Bacon asked, was the shape of that supposed continent lying south of the Strait of Magellan and commonly called Terra Australis? The conflicting or according phenomena of the tides in different places, the water spouts, the refrigeration of the air by icebergs on the Canadian coast, the balmy breezes blowing to seaward from Florida, the trade winds which had lent Europe wings to carry her across the Atlantic, the constantly westerly or anti-trade winds blowing toward the Portuguese shore, from which it was sometimes said Colombo had inferred the existence of a western 
continent generating them, the comparatively cold climate of North America, the frozen expanse of Labrador being in the latitude of Britain, and the contradictory phenomena of the Peruvian coast, which lay almost under the equator, while its ocean breezes blowing hardest at the full moons were said to produce a climate like that of southern Europe. The strange inequalities of temperature experienced in different parts of the Peruvian Cordilleras, the alleged phenomenon that the peaks of the Andes remain destitute of snow while it thickly covers their lower elevations with the effects produced on man by their attenuated air, not so much cold as keen, piercing the eyes and purging the stomach. Such inquiries as these, never previously formulated, make Bacon the founder of modern physical geography. American man, in his physical and ethnological aspect, strongly attracted Bacon's attention. Was the extraordinary longevity of the Brazilian and Virginian tribes, who remained manly vigor to the age of 120 years, connected with their practice of painting their skin? What? Was the cause of a similar phenomenon in Peru? Was it true, as some allege, that the fearful Morbus Gallicus, then for the first time raging in Europe and supposed, though erroneously, to have been imported from America, had its origin in the loathsome practice of cannibalism? What was the effect on American man of maize as his staple diet? In America, where flint was scarce, fire was universally kindled by the wooden drill. The American Prometheus then, in Bacon's word, had no intelligence with the European, and the arts of life must have originated independently in the New World, an inference somewhat boldly made from a single pair of facts, but which accorded, though Bacon knew it not, with the traditions of Mexico and Peru, and is amply confirmed by our own well-informed age, by everything known as the general progress of the American Aborigines. By an effort of judgment for which the material scarcely existed, and which had certainly never been made before his time, Bacon mentally arrayed against each other, the polished nations of Europe and the barbarous or savage ones of America, and asked himself the reasons of the contrast. Was it to be sought in soil, in the sky, in the physical constitution of man? These suggestions he answered negatively. The differences, he concluded, lay solely in the fact that the American peoples, for some as yet unknown reason, had made less progress in the arts of life. We know the reason to be nature's parsimony in furnishing the western continent with animals capable of labor and amenable to domestication. Here another question presented itself to this prince among thinkers. Was the project of planting the civilization of Europe among the American savages, a project widely entertained in western Europe, a feasible one? Bacon answered this also in the negative. Nor is it doubtful that, having regard to the contemporary idea of planting, Bacon was right. The idea of teaching the Indians to live virtuously and to know of men the manner and also to know God their maker was not yet obsolete, and the Spaniards, according to their lights, were vigorously prosecuting the task in Mexico and elsewhere. It had been reserved for a later age, in most respects more advanced, to acquiesce in a system of colonization which dispossessed the aboriginal owners of the soil, and deals with them as with vermin to be hunted down or stamped out or deported to holes and corners of land to dwindle and die out under the effects of poverty, chagrin, and vices introduced by their civilized conquerors. From the discovery to the time when European nations adopted a commercial policy and a commercial morality, from Colombo to Penn, those of the natives who submitted to European rule were regarded as men to be civilized and Christianized and ultimately to be blended in one race with their European brethren. 
Bacon discountenanced this view so far as concerned the savages of Florida, or northeastern America, and the foundation of English colonies there on a corresponding footing. He bade Englishmen throw aside ideas which, to his thinking, savored less of reality than of an antiquated romances like the Amadis de Gaulle and take up Caesar's commentaries. If Englishmen must perforce colonize, he pointed out to them, as the proper field of colonial enterprise, the adjacent island of Ireland, whose aboriginal peoples were sunk in a barbarism more shameful than American savagery, because of their immediate proximity to and close relations with one of the most civilized nations of the globe. These instances by no means represent the full influence exercised by the New World on the most powerful mind of modern times, and through him on ages which have realized his ideas without adding anything to their transcendent scope and penetration. There can be little doubt that Bacon's whole scheme for the reconstitution of knowledge on a broader basis and firmer foundation, in accordance with the truth of things and without regard to the routine of scholastic tradition, and with such fullness that, in his own words, the crystalline globe of the understanding could faithfully reflect all that the material globe or external world offers to his apprehension, was suggested to him by the facts briefly sketched in the foregoing pages. Truth, he wrote, was not the daughter of authority, but of time. America was certainly the greatest birth of time. Bacon applied these words to the philosophic system of which he was the founder. The discovery of America gave the human intellect what is known to mechanics as a dead lift. It dispelled a secular illusion. It destroyed the old blind reverence for antiquity, which Spencer might well have depicted as a sightless monster, stifling mankind in its serpentine embraces. Truth, to borrow from Milton an allegory worthy of Bacon, had been hewn like the body of Osiris into a thousand pieces. Philosophy, like Isis, the disconsolate spouse, wandered over the earth in quest of them, and the time would come when they would be gathered limb to limb and molded into an immortal feature of loveliness and perfection. What grounds of hope, to use Bacon's phrase, for that glorious reunion, or rather, what certain auguries of its ultimate attainment, he gathered from the new cosmography his writings abundantly testify. His own vast survey of knowledge attained, or that ought to be attained, he modestly described as a coasting voyage or perigeus of the new intellectual world. He loved to compare his own conjectures and anticipations of the boundless results which he knew his methods destined to achieve in the hands of posterity with the faint indications which had inspired Colombo to attempt the Mirabilis Navigatio, that daring six weeks voyage westward across the Atlantic. Feebly, indeed, and through the darkness of night, he says, blew the breeze of hope from the shores of the new continent of knowledge and power toward him, as from his lonely elevation he eagerly watched for those cheering signals which he knew would sooner or later greet the patient eye of expectant philosophy, though he himself might not be destined to behold them. Those signals, he wrote, must one day come, unless his own faith in the future should prove vain, and men were content to remain intellectual abjects. Humanity had waited long ages for the accomplishment of Seneca's prophecy, a prophecy which, in every mouth at the discovery of which Bacon, like all his contemporaries, hailed the discovery as the destined fulfillment. Veniet annis secular seres, quibus oceanus viculum rerum, laxet et igineus patiet telus, 
Tifius novus detegat orbis nexic teres ultima tule. Possibly he had pondered over a less known passage in the prose writings of the same author, who predicts that the time shall come when knowledge shall be vastly increased and men shall look back with amazement at the ignorance of the Greeks and Romans. There was confirmation of such hopes in Holy Scripture. The anticipation of the Chaldean seer that in the latest times many should run to and fro and knowledge be increased, he interpreted as foreshadowing the opening of five-sixths of the globe, hitherto clothed, to man's travel, study, and reinvigorated powers of reasoning. Into the future of history, in the narrow sense of the world, Bacon ventured only by one memorable forecast, since abundantly verified and more abundantly by momentous events of quite recent occurrence. He prophesied that the great inheritances of the East and the West, both at the time ready to slip from the feeble grasp of Spain, must alike fall to those who command the ocean, to that Anglo-Saxon race of which he will remain to all time one of the most illustrious representatives. End of section 8. Recording by Nathan B. Oman, Williamsburg, Virginia.